Mariah M. And I'm Micah Gilmer. And this is the Black Future Manifesto. What's goody? So this is an exciting episode. Mm-hmm. As you know, on the Black Future Manifesto, we really have the purpose of thinking about how do we create a new black future for all of us, right? And so that requires really understanding some of the systems that we're navigating. So on this particular episode, we are tackling capitalism. As we all know, capitalism, just like anything else that exists in our nation, is entrenched with a long history of racism, of patriarchy, and of classism based on those things. And so we have two guests on the show, Ryan and Napoleon from Activist. Micah, can you tell us more? Yeah, so I've known both of them forever, was part of the launching of Activest, and they are doing incredible work at the intersection of capitalism, activism, and community finance. So literally the name Activest is like investment and activist put together, right? So this idea of how do we use the capital markets and these capitalist systems that we know are built on racism and patriarchy to do some different kind of work. Right. And so just as when we talk to folks around racism, we have folks that are understanding the history of how race was built in this country to be able to dismantle that system. And and same thing with patriarchy, understanding how patriarchy happens. Really, Napoleon and Ryan have really dedicated themselves to understanding the way that capitalism works in this country as a way of dismantling some of the negative impacts it has on our communities. Right. So we also talk about, are we going to get free if black people just replicate what white folks have been doing in terms of the American dream and pulling up your bootstraps and if you do the hard work and make it out then is that work is that work for everybody you should know? i say like spoiler alert and like no <laughs> no it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if you could tell by mariah's tone that's probably not the solution we're gonna propose um but they do talk a lot about their life and their experience and how it shaped their impact and then also specifically how they're doing that right mm-hmm. so they're doing this really incredible work that's looking at the financial systems within local government and so how do we create incentives for cities and counties and other places to act differently towards black and brown communities, both for justice reasons, but also because some of these policies are really like financially stupid, for lack of a better word, and right. not helpful. Yeah, and also what's the impact when people actually have the power to make decisions like within their city and influence and create the change that they want to see within their community? So there's a lot in this episode. We'll probably have to have them back at some point yeah. to unpack some of it. But I think it was a really interesting introduction to thinking differently about how we can make change happen in our communities. Yeah, and exist in the system that already is against us. All right, well, hope you like this episode. Capitalism doesn't work, and um, <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Ryan and Napoleon. Y'all can say words. Hey, glad to be here. (laughs) That's right. Wonderful. So, Ryan, who who are you? Tell me about yourself. Yeah, great question. Who am I? (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, right outside of Philly, uh, between Philly and Wilmington, Delaware. And the town I grew up in is about 6,000 people, Kennett Square, and it was probably about 20% black growing up, but we had a huge migrant farm worker population. A lot of Mexican immigrants come to Canada to work in the mushroom industry. So we had a lot of folks coming as immigrants and then the rest of the town was white and we had a lot of Italian families that were mushroom industry owners. So in the town where my dad's from, a couple of towns over, he was telling me that he went to the guidance counselor in high school and they were talking about college. And, and my dad said, you know, I'm thinking about maybe social work or something. And the guidance counselor said, no, that's not going to work for you. How about you go work in one of these mushroom houses? So okay. that's the internship that he got to work in the mushroom houses and pick mushrooms. Wow. Okay. Um, there's not a lot of ladders there. And, mm. the, and there's not a lot of ownership opportunities. So, yeah, the story of uh, living on the other side of the Mason-Dixon line, 
you know, Kennett was there was a lot of crazy racism. So it was kind of like kick the cat. The white folks hate the black folks. The black folks hate on the Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans hate on the Mexicans. And in my neighborhood growing up, there was just a, a lot of animosity. We actually had this thing called the Yellow Ribbon Campaign, where a lot of neighbors, it was almost all white folks, they put a yellow ribbon on their mailbox. And basically, if you had a yellow ribbon throughout the neighborhood, you were in solidarity and not having Mexicans in your neighborhood wow. who were having, you know, maybe had more than one family or some extended family living with them. There was this whole thing around, we got to teach, you know, Mexican folks to not park their cars on the grass. You know, this is, this is the worst thing, the assault on what it means to be an American. Mm. So it was crazy. So, you know, this is not that long ago. And there's, I feel like there's probably some parts of that that feel like they're coming back and... My wife used to teach in the middle school just a couple of years ago. Middle school, again, now it's 50% Mexican and 50% white. And, you know, a couple, couple other kids were released from lunch. They're going back to their classrooms. And so it was a couple of Mexican girls are about to go up the steps. And so the white boy lacrosse players linked arms in front of the steps. And they said, hey, we're the wall. You can't go this way. Go mm. back. Get out of here. This is our country. And so it's crazy things that people are still dealing with, with racism that is not so covert these days. Same question for you, Napoleon. Who are you? How did you come to be who you are? So I am proud product of Eastern Carolina. So folks that know North Carolina, hometown is Grimes in North Carolina. Probably about 150 folks. So, you know, real kind of sticks, Eastern Carolina. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew every, every Everybody's related. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's that sort of thing, right? And it's just outside of Greenville. So, going out east, if you start going toward the water, when you leave Greenville, it's right out there. And grew up with a family that, interestingly, like, we have generations and generations in Eastern Carolina. So, you know, my mom's side of the family, they were from a spot out in Aurora, North Carolina, which is going out a little bit further. Like, me and my grandma live on the same street. She just lives like 30 miles further out toward the water, like right on the water in Aurora. And, uh, you know, Aurora is what, maybe 110 people and the largest phosphate mine in the continental U.S. All the health issues, all the other stuff, and basically having a mining town in a place like Eastern Carolina, which is interesting. Family is from out that way. A lot of my kind of experience where I came from has been growing up in kind of like black business. You know, my dad, he's a serial entrepreneur. I worked in his company from day one. First one was a janitorial service, so, you know, cleaning toilets before school, all that good stuff. And then working in a sawmill that he bought out of bankruptcy, which was really dope. And at the time, he didn't know if he had said something like social entrepreneur or something like that. He would have been like, what are you talking about? Like, that makes no sense. But was employing all the local justice-involved folks, all the local immigrants, and producing products for Weyerhaeuser, which for some reason they couldn't produce themselves. So like literally a wood mill in rural Eastern Carolina that was creating a pallet. Weyerhaeuser couldn't do it themselves. They gave it to this creative bunch of folks over here, Island of Misfit Toys sort of thing, and it worked out really well. And so I had a lot of great experience kind of learning from him as well as other folks in Greenville and in and around Greenville. And some of the work that I do today still links from that. There's a lot of CDC work in Greenville, so community development corporations Mm -hmm. really came up in that. Pops was the president of West Greenville CDC. I had a chance to learn under some really great thinkers there that were trying to build black capitalism in Eastern Carolina. Uh, And then, not surprisingly, decided to come into North Carolina Central and enjoy myself while I was up here at Central. Landed at MNF Bank and worked for them for a few years right out, so a black-owned bank right here in Durham. Got my chops there, then did a little bit of investment banking, some venture capital work, went back over at UNC, did some cool stuff, and then have been around the area for a while. So, you know, since then, it's been working at Self Help, which a few folks I think are familiar with. 
um, you know, uh, doing some community development work with them. We're getting some black-owned financial institutions to CEO to try to turn around some of those. And then the most recent role has been at the state. Grew up proud North Carolina guy. Uh, love my state. I've had the opportunity to give back to my state in my last role as Deputy Secretary of Commerce. And so oversaw a bunch of economic development work there. And now I'm really excited to be working on this project around ActiveS, really trying to bring some justice to the municipal bond market, which we think is kind of interesting. So talking about like ActiveS, like why, what is it? Why is it important for ActiveS to happen right now? So one of the things that is worth thinking about is black folk. You know, we have a common bond and the, the things that we do, we want to see positive impact in our community. Uh, we're linked in many ways. And so, you know, regardless of whether you're the banker or you're the business owner or you're the teacher or you're the you know, scholar, the academic, or, you know, you're just trying to figure out your way, whatever it is, you're doing that work in solidarity in a lot of ways with other folks doing similar work. A lot of activists out there doing really great work, advocates. And one of the things that we've seen is that for all the good work that's happening, there are these spaces that should be safe spaces. There should be level playing fields, municipalities, cities, communities, where you shouldn't really have to worry about whether the, whether the table is slanted against you. And what we've found is that there are some places where that's definitely not the case, where, you know, being black and brown in a community really exposes you to some harmful, aggressive tactics from the city or town that is supposed to be looking out for your best interests, honestly working in the public good. And so ActiveS is using the lever of investment, the municipal bond investing, to try to combat some of that. And we're doing that alongside lots of local activists that have already started raising up issues in these areas, saying like, hey, you know, we really don't like the issue of fines and fees, aggressive tax lien foreclosure. You can go through the list of issues that folks are like, yo, this is really stripping wealth from my community and it's doing it at a structural level that's a real problem. And so what we're trying to do is work alongside those folks to be able to come up with solutions and try to find a way to make this playing field a bit more equal for folks that are trying to find a way. So Ryan, what are what are some of the things you encounter like with activists that are maybe the most passionate things that folks are just like, we need to do something about this and it's not an option and y'all look like the folks to be able to help us do it. So one of the things that has kind of blown me away is how police brutality shows up in finances. And so there's a mm. great organization called Acre, Acre Campaigns, and they've done some research on how the city of Chicago, they actually had to borrow money from the capital markets to, to issue a bond to pay for police brutality. So they called it a police brutality bond. Um, and basically, the the, the, the okay. This yeah. is a joke. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, they didn't call it that. But yeah. <laughs> well, that's what it was. That's what it was. That's what it was. So basically, you're borrowing money because you're beating people up. You're violating folks' human rights. You're, and oftentimes, you might be killing people. And occasionally, you get caught. Occasionally, yeah. you get caught. Right. Yeah. It's just a normal thing. You, you'll just go to your banker and you say, you know what? I need to borrow an additional $10 million this year because we killed more people than we estimated in our budget. Yeah. And we have to do payouts. We're going to bury them somewhere deep in our financial statements. And we're just going to write this off as under our insurance policy. Well, it's interesting that some of the insurers now, are they're at a point, and it's not from some social justice perspective or we're trying to be right. They're just saying, look, you all are such a liability that we're actually going to need to drop your insurance coverage. Yeah. Before Obamacare, before ACA, 
I couldn't get health insurance because I had pre-existing conditions. So these folks are saying, look, you all have a condition. It's called you're a violence and you kill black folks. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to drop your coverage. So the thing is that's wild about it is that these cities are now going to be scrambling because they're not going to be able to pay the full cost. In some ways, having that insurance allows you, it almost dampens the impact of the, the cost to, to you. There was a city in Illinois, I can't remember the name of it, I think in 2005, it was bankrupt because of police payouts from um, police brutality. And I think it was Center for Popular Democracy and about a year ago came out with a report around the cost of policing and, and over-policing and the fact that for so many municipalities, particularly smaller ones, you know, your biggest expense is not taking care of folks, it's not services to people, it is you're paying for the cost of police. And police we're and incarceration. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that are expanding at like 8-10% a year. Mm-hmm. So I want to dig into that a little bit because I think the assumption is always that we need more safety, we need better police, we need to invest in this because it protects our interests and our finances and all those sorts of things, right? And so what y'all are saying is that, no, actually, there's a lot of these things that are the financial conventional wisdom for a city, like invest in police, invest in incarceration, invest in these things, and it'll help you grow, that actually are really bad for cities' bottom lines. You don't unpack that a little bit. So well, what did the Trump administration, like, I was it Van Jones was like a, you know, I think he got a little black for like applauding Donald Trump, saying like, look, Trump did the right thing, Congress did the right thing in this criminal justice reform that just got passed. You got a conservative presidency, you got a conservative Congress that's actually also agreeing that this stuff isn't working. So it's it's crazy that even feds are saying this, but for whatever reason at the local level, municipalities, they are the last ones. And some of that is politics. Some of that is say, you know, the fact that these are favors, these are family, these are good jobs with really good pensions, but they're caught, you know, they're at the expense of other priorities. And you can't have both. And I think just alongside that, there's a ton of folks doing great research out there about not whether the count of people is right, but whether the body of work is right. So, like, should you have stop and frisk sort of priorities? And I'm not the, the, the policy expert on that front, but there are a number of those sort of priorities where you look at a municipal budget, you see the dollars that are being invested. In many cases, you know, the amount that's going to public safety. So that'd be police, fire, rescue, some other stuff. The amount that's going to that, including the pensions, is getting up to where it can be 30, 40, 50, in some cases, 60% of a municipal budget. And when you look at that, the question has to be asked, like, are there other ways in which we can invest those dollars, even with the same people, but with different priorities and have different outcomes? Because the thing that we've seen is that the direct relationship, which you would expect that there'd be an inverse relationship, more people on the streets, less crime doesn't necessarily end up that way. And so you could be doing other sort of interventions, supporting communities in different ways, having the kind of police community interaction structured differently so that you do have some of the goals or so that you can achieve some of the outcomes that you're hoping for your community at a cheaper clip. Get something that's a cost a little less. Right. But how are police defining what crime is Mm -hmm. because like in terms of what folks in municipalities get criminalized for Mm -hmm. it's things like of taillights being Mm -hmm. out it's it's really minuscule things that are not in the interest of the literal safety Mm -hmm. of like the community there was a woman who just there's a grandmother who just died in a jail Mm -hmm. because she had a $300 bond Mm -hmm. and you know most bonds are 10% of what you can pay Mm -hmm. she didn't have $30 and so she died in a jail I mean I don't know what her her crime was but if it's that low of a bond it was probably nonviolent. 
Yeah. It was so. it was probably something like a ticket. Right. But this is how like cities are making money, literally ticketing people who can't afford to well, like pay for these things. But mm-hmm. that's but that's how like cities make money. And it's interesting that because they're not really making money, right? Because like let's right. take that example. So you have you know money bail situation, but it, because this person can't afford to pay, you're actually paying money to jail this person, right? Which is very expensive. It's like, mm-hmm. you know. It's like a thousand, yeah, like a thousand bucks. So, so there's, a, yeah. there's a sister, Alexis Harris, out of the University of Washington, and she is probably one of the foremost national scholars right now on kind of talking about fines and forfeitures and legal financial obligations, uh, LFOs. And so, so she's Can we just break down what those are real quick for folks that are So not, basically, <laughs> it's, it is the, the financial charge that people get that accompany a crime. So... Or an infraction. It doesn't even have to be. A, it's not even criminal usually. Right. Uh, it's Everything kind of, from like a speeding ticket. Yeah, speeding ticket to broken taillight to jaywalking. So here's the problem. So what Alexis Harris's research has found that cities actually spend more money collecting those revenues than they do bringing revenue in. So the state of Washington, for example, spent more money trying to pursue these claims, collecting fines and tickets, those outstanding dollars from generally kind of poor black folks. So it's an inefficient process. City of Chicago, over the past probably five, six years, the percent of the city's revenue that's come from fining and ticketing people started around like 4%, Mm -hmm. and now it is up to 9%. This is over a billion dollars a year that Chicago brings in from fining people. So Mother Jones did a, a study, I think it came out earlier this year, that showed the number of personal bankruptcies in Chicago has gone up tenfold in the past few years. And a large portion of people who are bankrupt, part of their bankruptcy is due to money they owe to the city of Chicago. I think the average amount was $3,000. We know about the black-white wealth gap. Black folks have one-tenth of the wealth of white folks. But for whatever reason, Chicago wants to bankrupt people who are on the edge of making ends meet. What did you do with that blood money? What did Rahm Emanuel do with a billion dollars he brought in from poor Chicagoans? Wow. So, like, there's some things that cities are doing that are clearly both unjust, unfair, mm-hmm. racist, and also bad for the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Are there some things that are maybe the opposite, that are just, that are fair, that are equitable, and also have been shown to have good results for cities financially? Yes. The issue that we run into is that there are so many things where, you know, cities are doing something good. But then in the same breath, they're doing something that's highly extractive from communities of color, which makes it really hard for you to really give them credit for the good that they're doing, you know? You don't have to name them by name, but what are some policies? But if you were to look at some of the efforts that cities are doing around what you call economic gardening, and we're going to uh, find ways to incent small businesses to grow or create better policy pipelines that small businesses, the certification process for different things that they need is like a lot simpler, a lot more straightforward. Zoning regulations really allow small business to thrive, especially in communities of color. Those are policies where there's a very clear trade-off between like, what's the amount of money or resource or incentive abatement that we should give to one corporation that could be very large versus what should we do for the folks that are right here? Small businesses, create more jobs, they employ more people, they have a stronger kind of local economic impact, they're more likely to hire folks from the local community. There are all these benefits that accrue with that where that's a pretty simple trade-off. 
You could say the same around some workforce priorities, whether it be, you know, some of the band the box work that communities are taking on where they're saying, we really do not want to penalize folks. To further criminalize. Or further criminalize <laughs> and for, further, further separate them from the economic mainstream. Mm. We look at communities that are doing that sort of thing, as well as wage work, really saying, like, we recognize that the system we're operating in doesn't pay someone the fair wage, not because they can't, but because they choose not to. And we as a community are going to have an interest in supporting kind of like living wage. When you see those sorts of things, those are the things that you can point at and say, you know what, you're trying to build an economic and really kind of political system locally that's supportive of all people and really accretive to the folks that are otherwise marginalized outside the mainstream. Uh, but then you also see some of this issue around fines and fees and and you got cities that are getting 20% of their revenue or 30% of their revenue from fines and fees. And it kind of begs the question, what is a city for? Who is it made for? And what its core kind of at a philosophical level, who does it exist for? A uh, number of organizations are talking about the financialization of cities that to some extent they just become these charters of the state that can exist for whoever has the most power and savvy to take advantage of it. And there's clear ways to, that you can take advantage of a government entity to get tax-sheltered income, to accrue wealth to yourself and the groups like you. We, it's like a gated community at a very large level. It's not the case that municipalities are just neutral, that they're neutral spaces that are equal playing ground for everyone. Do our cities and do our communities owe something to the people who are there? To the people who have been there, the people who are going to be there after the young, hip, urban playground folks leave? So that's really the question. You know, is there some kind of social contract that our communities owe us and that we owe to each other that is greater than just whoever has the most votes, the most power, and can amass the most capital? We recognize that we have accepted, or a lot of folks have accepted, a private market where it's eater be eaten sort of thing, hyper-competitive, and so much of it is really trying to be extractive to communities or trying to create the most wealth for the shareholder. But as Ryan was saying, you really hope that that is not bleeding over into the public sector. If you kind of look at the base definition of you know, capitalism, specifically that it is an economic and political system that is for the benefit or at least under the control of private sector. But you hope that the public sector has a voice there. And again, it's kind of like a level playing field. And so it does worry us a little bit when we look at these spaces that are supposed to be clean and caring and not have the encroaching forces of kind of capital interests in pushing them to be more predatory and extractive and aggressive toward their most vulnerable folks. And we see like, no, what's happening in these communities are really becoming an extension of many of the investors that have invested in them. And they're doing some of the worst practices that you would see of any sort of business. Like if you were, yeah. if you were looking in the international markets and you were looking at countries like we are seeing things that are human rights violations mm. that are happening to American citizens under the purview of a municipality acting against an individual to benefit an investor. And there's a stuff that we look at where we're like, this is really clean policy. And this is a good policy that we want to be supportive of. And we want to promote good policies, as Michael was mentioning earlier, right? But then there's this other stuff where we look at it and we just say, under the UN Human Rights Convention, this would not be acceptable. And there's a community that's acting against its citizens in this way, purely because those citizens are the poorest, most marginalized, or with the least political voice. And that's something that we're trying to actively fight and work alongside 
activists and local advocates to help with that. Just to use Durham, North Carolina as a case study for a lot of things you all were saying. One, I was thinking of, well, one, I moved to Durham maybe like four years ago. And even then I noticed like a deep change from just visiting when I was an undergrad. But it's very clear from folks who are OGs of Durham that Durham is being created for people who don't live here yet. Mm. They're not building a Durham for the people who already exist, but for people who would make Durham more than what it is or whatever people feel like it should be. Secondly, it's I'm, I'm thinking back to the homeless camp. There was a homeless camp right off of 147th, I think it was exit 13, and um, city was doing some mad shady stuff in terms of making those people feel like they weren't welcome. Number one, they don't have a place to live. This is their home. Um, the Department of Transportation put up a no loitering sign where they lived. Folks were making false phone calls about them peeing on buildings and things like that. The police were called and they're like, well, we're gonna, but literally evict them from their homes because of trash and things. Like any reason, any reason just to displace people who are already displaced in Durham. And those were city efforts and those were city funds. And again, it was community who who had to push back against that. So I know Mariah, you were really engaged in kind of just some of the organizing and activism around the new police department. And, yes yeah. and no, as in my homies were. Okay, and I kind of came late in the game. But in terms of community deciding what to do with funds, Durham wanted to and succeeded in building a $82 million police station, new ass police station directly across from a black, mm-hmm. like a black mm-hmm. neighborhood. Folks organized or pissed and just like, cops don't protect us, we protect us. Y'all ain't doing this shit right. And then that 82 got bumped down to like 72 or like 71. So $10 million of a still ridiculously amount of money to spend on a police station when one already works was bumped down. And out of that organizing work from um, local organizers with Durham Beyond Policing, with Durham for All, with Black Youth Project 100, Durham Chapter, out of that came participatory budgeting for the city of Durham. And I believe Durham is, it's one of the very early cities to donate Mm -hmm. funds to the people i do know for a fact though it's the largest percentage of a town's budget that's mm-hmm. been given mm-hmm. for participatory budgeting so this year or this two-year round was given 2.4 million dollars mm-hmm. and that's broken up via wards for community side to do with it which again it sounds good in theory and i think it does it is good in theory um but also a lot of towns who've done it some of them have like crashed and burned mm-hmm. It wasn't held responsibly, but also in terms of mobilizing folks to to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Communities who already exist before this happened have their own agendas, you know? You have Becky and her moms who want to build whatever they want on their park, and it's just like, people literally don't have places to live. Mm-hmm. People don't have bus shelters. Some of the biggest things on this round of disorder budgeting is infrastructure issues. Yeah. People are like, fill in potholes give us street lights, literally, mm-hmm. literally basic amenities that the city isn't taking care of, but the people say is important. And so I think it's a great opportunity. I think it's, for me, it's unfortunate. Again, I'm just like, why are we deciding with our money to fill in potholes when they can be doing that? And we can be giving stuff that we not only need, but like want for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the city's supposed to be taking mm-hmm. care of the things that we actually need. I mean, one of the things that we have seen in participatory budgeting, and I mean, you made this case, in all cases, 
it created a venue for the community to have a voice about how money is spent in the community in which they live. Mm -hmm. And we think that that's a really great first step in every case. So much of the good work that's being done around racial equity in cities is being cannibalized by other fiscal policies that are aggressive toward communities. And so creating a channel through which communities can kind of raise their hand and not only say this is a problem, but also say we can see the budget line item where more budgeting is being increased on an issue to target us, or the budget is being diminished in an area that we think there should be additional investment. That sort of voice we think is really important. And honestly, part of what we believe and what we've seen, community advocates, local activists, have been coming to us and saying like, you know, the thing that we really see value in in activists is being able to be kind of like that fiscal sort of activist alongside us, that fiscal voice. And so participatory budgeting just creates a really great channel to be able to build out that musculature, if you will, for community folks to be able to say, nah, I understand the budget. This isn't over my head. I know exactly how this works. And I know exactly how this is gonna affect the community that I am a part of, we think is really important and a great outcome, regardless of what the dollar amount or the timing that anticipatory budgeting starts. So one thing I was interested in earlier, you talked about in terms of good policies is supporting homegrown and black owned businesses in a community. Why is that better or different than having a big box like an Amazon or a Walmart or whatever that brings in jobs that way? Like what is it about other than just like, okay, we should buy black. Why are black businesses actually beneficial or good for a city? I mean, one of the things that you see in any sort of community when you talk about economic resilience is something you want to see, a community that isn't just purely dependent on one type of business. So even if we pull race out of it, which is impossible, we just go ahead and start there. But if we're just talking about the numbers, having the large organizations that operate at a level of scale where they can really diminish the necessity for the number of employees or, you know, the amount they have to pay each employee or otherwise, the economic sort of benefit and runoff that happens in that community is going to be minimized relative to if it was a locally owned business. If you want to talk about black businesses, black folks, we like to employ folks. So, you know, if you say, take the number of uh, jobs on average, if you take a white owned business, for every million dollars of revenue, they're going to have about 3.5 employees, give or take. Uh, for a minority business, the number is going to be like 6.7. Black business is going to be like 9.7. Okay. It's across industries. Black folks, we really like to employ our kin folks, the folks around us, the folks that we know, the folks that we know need work. And in a lot of cases, that sort of economic runoff is beneficial in our communities. And so if you are looking to make a case for growing your local economy, There isn't a better sort of investment than investing in creating not just the individual business, because there is a case of individual wealth creation, which is good, but having a policy that sets forth structural wealth creation, whereby the landscape is a little more even for all businesses, especially and maybe even slanting the benefit of communities of color or black businesses, that is going to have a much larger sort of economic benefit in the local community. Um, So those are some of the benefits that we see when we're looking at communities. And really, in many cases, kind of a measure of not necessarily what's the level of success you have, but do you have a policy in place to try to advance this in your local community? Is there something we can point to in your city where we can see that at least effort being made? 
So that sounds great, right? Black businesses, they'll save us all and employ us all. Like, yeah. like, so yeah, why yeah. not? Why can't we just like black capitalism our way out of this thing? Yeah. It was it two years ago, Institute for Policy Studies came out with that report that said it will take 228 years for black families to have the same wealth as white families. So you're talking about a situation where we are starting so far behind the starting line. But there's also another report that came out in the next 35 years. The average black wealth in this country will be zero. And then about eight to 15 mm-hmm. years later for Latinos, it'll be zero as well. So it's actually moving in the wrong direction. Black wealth is disappearing at a fast rate. And soon it won't be around at all. And 10 years ago, I remember seeing Elizabeth Warren give some speech when she was, I think maybe still at Harvard, talking about just the average net wealth in our country overall. It's not that high. Most families, when you you add up your debts and you add up your assets, it's, it's not much. Mm-hmm. And for black folks, it's really not there. And a lot of times it's in the negative. So when we talk about the exclusion that's happening over centuries and decades, and really we're still finding you know, rates of denial of, of mm-hmm. black homeowner applications and mortgage approvals that are still happening in you know, 2018. Like this is a real phenomenon that we haven't even gotten our arms around some of the negative, intentionally exclusionary things. So people point to redlining maps from you know mm-hmm. the 60s or the 50s, but this stuff is happening today. Yeah, there are folks that will say all you need is more money in black businesses. And I grew up, I grew up inside of a black business, and I saw all the benefits of that. But that was one business in a community, and it was an exceptional business. And so unless you're creating places where there are policies in place or more structural, systemic interventions to ensure that everyone has that opportunity, you're always going to be fighting uphill. What we're trying to do is to make sure that in the places where community is doing something that is detractive of that level playing field, that we're saying, stop that. And in the places that deem themselves to be all about racial justice and all about responsibility for everyone in their community, we're saying recognize that there is a restorative attribute that you have to have to this. You have to go back and look at the history of policies that have disenfranchised folks, that have kept folks out of the economic on ramps, that have blown up entire communities of well-performing black businesses or strong economic engines, Rosewood, Greenwood, Wilmington, Tulsa, Tulsa, you know what I mean? Like Wilmington, the only coup d'etat to happen Mm -hmm. on U.S. soil right here and for the purpose of the destruction of a black community that was doing really well. Recognize that that history exists and you aren't really being serious about this racial justice conversation unless you're using your platform to try to correct for some of that. And we recognize you can't correct for all of it, But for the piece that you can correct for, you need to be about that business. Otherwise, don't claim yourself to be all about racial justice. Replicating white success is mm-hmm. not going to be successful mm-hmm. for black mm-hmm. folk. Mm-hmm. Like that translation is not equal mm-hmm. and the same. But I feel like the biggest thing that I see is the whole individual wealth thing. Mm-hmm. I made it. So, so you what? can make it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, perhaps, but again, I'm here about 
community mm-hmm. like how can community be fortified based on what you're doing and if for yeah. me if that's not a part of the conversation mm-hmm. then you can be a black business and you can employ black people but mm-hmm. what are you doing outside of that for me i need another mm-hmm. step outside of just buy black but do you have my values in mind right is your politics trash right like, you know what i mean i know we black folks hold each other to a higher standard but it's because we have more to lose right absolutely you know you think about folks unpack capitalism and really making money one of the early frameworks around how you make money is that there are really three attributes, land, labor, and equipment, you know, kind of capital, and that you would mix all those together into a cocktail. And then as it developed, what would happen is there'd be money to come out the other end for the person that invested in that. And since really we've adopted that framework here in the US, a lot of other places, we've really optimized for the one part about making money, the profit motive. Land, destroy it. Labor, exploit it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like capital and equipment, just like use that to replace everything else. Mm -hmm. And give me this little piece of profit motive. That's not the equation for Mm -hmm. us. But that same equation, you can try to maximize for the worker. These are all forms of capital, bro. You have human capital. And there are places that really try to go after that work. You look at some of the cooperative work that's happening. You know, I had the pleasure of running two black owned co-ops, you know, one in Charlotte and one in Eastern Carolina. And between those institutions, our workers and our members, we were member owned. So the person that we were serving every day was also the person that was saying like, yeah, you know what, I'm investing in you. Like you're supporting my work. And the staff that was there, they showed up every day and the people that they were serving saw them as as folks that deserve a quality check. And I think that there are models like that, whether it's cooperative models or even new forms of co-ops, where you don't have to maximize purely for the profit motivation. And you can try to find other things, other benefits for running an organization, still delivering quality services, but also benefiting the people in your community, not just the bottom line of the investor. Like you said, the the way we see capitalism works is definitely a dehumanizing one. Mm-hmm. And it's not one where people are valued because people are only as good as what they can do for you. Mm-hmm people shouldn't have to exist just to be something for somebody else like what what does it look like just to be and to match up what you value as a person and then what capitalism values Mm -hmm. it's it's a never-ending battle it's an uphill battle you know napoleon i think about your journey as like starting out being a capitalist right Mm -hmm. being in the financial (laughs) sector Call for lack of a better right. word, right? Like, you know, <laughs> it's happening. Uh, or in Ryan, even like you starting out like me, kind of in the nonprofit sector. What's the journey from Ryan when you were 22, 24, starting your career, and Napoleon, like when you were that same age, you know, mm-hmm. starting in banking to really thinking about this idea of like, we need to change these systems and change the incentives from a financial standpoint. Mm-hmm. Or were you thinking about changing it? Yeah. Was, <laughs> like, how did you, how did you get to do, I mean, what you're doing is like, it's really dope and it's amazing, but it's a crazy idea. This system of like capitalism trying to turn it on its head to make life different in cities for black and brown people. How do you come up with something like that? Yeah, so I started with my career in Teach for America in North Philadelphia, and I was the worst teacher in America. And after that, I worked in a think tank in Philadelphia. It's called Public Private Ventures. And we did a lot of government demonstration projects, federally funded and also some philanthropically funded workforce development, education initiatives, kind of testing and piloting ideas. 
So it had a really good reputation. But as I got in there and kind of saw who was funding and what was some of the driving forces behind our work, PPV, we always got the most money in Republican administrations because they're always trying to test these paternalistic strategies for working with, you know, deadbeat dads oh, and, uh, to working with folks who are returning citizens and seeing folks as assets versus managing poverty, managing folks of color. It was really bizarre. So John DiUlio at the University of Pennsylvania, he was kind of one of the early thought leaders at our organization. He's also the guy that came up with coin a super predator framework that Clinton used. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this was, and one of our biggest clients at the time was the White House Office of Faith-Based Initiatives under George Bush. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of that compassionate conservatism, charitable choice stuff. I think seeing folks use policy in a really almost regressive way, people talked about wanting change. They weren't changing anything, maybe for the worse. What's that phrase? The road to hell is paved with, with good, good intentions. intentions. Yes. Well, you gotta have good intentions first. Yeah, I guess it depends on what your what your, what your intentions what, are. What are your intentions? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that just working there and seeing if these are think tanks where it's supposed to be the best and brightest, testing out ideal strategies for mm. a just society. I don't want any part of it. This ain't I, it. Yeah, this ain't it. Mm. We ain't getting free off of this. Yeah. This is this is not lead to freedom. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't about change at the end. I think that was kind of my wake-up moment. So I had, like, I'd say early wake-up, and then I was asleep for a little bit, and then I had a reawakening. What, we were, what I was saying earlier, like, I grew up in a black business household. My father and mother really believed that business could be used as a tool for good in the community that we lived in, and they really tried to lead with that. And so I worked in a, those businesses until undergrad, came up at Central, met a bunch of really great folks. And then at Central, I was told like, hey, you should consider banking. And for me, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I think I'm gonna do something like that. And went to MNF Bank here. So black owned bank, uh, worked for a guy, Don Harrington, chief credit officer at the time. And he taught me everything I needed to know about credit and how to do it in a compassionate way. And then I went into investment banking down in Charlotte. And the thing that I saw there is like, there ain't no compassion. Mm. These markets are hyper-competitive. They are aggressive. In many cases, they are extractive. And to the extent that you want to try to stand against them, they will destroy you. Financially, personally, the whole thing. One of the things that I learned is that there were ways to make the markets move in a slightly different way or make them respond to things in a different way with risk the possibility of loss or the possibility of an outsized win as being the two kind of tools that you could have. So if you can make the case that a market deserved to think about something more risky than it should and demonstrate that, the market would change the way it responded to that issue. If you can make it seem like something was better as a potential investment, it would change. And so I picked up a tool there, but the entire time realizing like, yeah, you know what? This, what we were doing at MNF was real good work. We're actually building communities. It wasn't extractive. We're trying to create quality spaces and environments and use capital to grow communities. And so that was my kind of sleepy phase. And right near the end of 2007, I was, I remember coming back. So I just told my pops about this bonus that I got. And I come back and I was like, yo, dad, like, you know, I was G'd up. I just bought like a new new whip. Like, you know, I was clean. Like I was, I was fresh, right? I was like, yo, dad, like, I got this bonus, 
I feel great. I was like, this is more money than I've ever had. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I remember he looked at me and he was like, but what are you doing for your people? And that messed up everything. Cause I was like, I'm doing nothing for my people. Mm. I came up here, I got these tools. I know how the system works. I know how capital works. I know how to utilize risk, understand risk, how to price risk, how to do it better than a lot of folks. I mean, at one point, was the number two institutional investor rank analyst on the street. And I wasn't using that to help my people. Pretty soon after that, I was like, I got to get out of here. Didn't have a better decision, so I went back to grad school. And I used two years in grad school to try to learn from everybody about social investing, impact investing, and ended up landing over at self-help with Martin. And he knows how to utilize capital to build communities, among other things. And so I had an opportunity to kind of learn from him, learned that there were some Black-owned institutions out here that were really being taken down by political interests. If our institutions are gone, then what do we have? If you're in Charlotte and you always had a Black-owned credit union that you could go to where you'd be treated fairly, and that's not there anymore, like where do you go? The payday lender? You're going to go to a consumer finance company, pay twice as much? and not have a community of folks wrapped around you mm -hmm. that can support your economic journey. And so I had the opportunity to work on that. And then with ActiveS, it really has been getting to chop it up with the frontline folks and some other groups out there that are just thinking about this in a really thoughtful way. Get policy, get community, get the nonprofit space, are trustworthy. So like you really have to go to them with like, yo, this is what I understand about this problem of capital. What do you think we can do? And going into the lab and coming out with something like ActiveS, so. Do both of you all have children? Mm -hmm. And so these are some dream shattering discoveries. Mm. My question is, how does that inform the rendering of your children and helping them shape their perspective or discover how the world works for themselves? Yeah, <laughs> thanks, thanks you, you, you're <laughs> welcome. So one of the things that I've had a conversation with my kids about and I got two and a four-year-old, beautiful young women in the mold of their beautiful mom. And I've had to have, like, they've asked questions about why is something a certain way. Most recently, we were going back down east, and we lived around a bunch of pig farms back home. There are plenty of people of color that live around. Lots of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I got the question, why does it always smell funny when we go to grandma's house? Mm -hmm. And unpacking that, you can give the surface conversation like, well, you know, that's, that's pig farm, we'll get to the rest of it later. Or you can go to the deeper conversation of, well, there was a point at which the only property that our family had was this property. And the value of it was low enough that it's where a company wanted to put a bunch of pigs because it was cheap. Mm -hmm. And that's why that's here but we were here first, <laughs> you know, sort of thing. And so I've been having a balance of trying not to go in too hard right. with them, but also recognizing that, that this, whatever this understanding of business, the intersection of race, investing and capital and community is, whatever that intersection is, I do them a bit of a disservice not to at least talk to them about it. Really trying to say, it's gonna be valuable for you to have a map that is somewhat closer to the landscape versus you not understanding how these pieces fit together, at least to the best of my extent. And I feel like that's what my mother and father did for me and that's kind of what I'm trying to do for them. So Napoleon mentioned a minute ago about being truly restorative for local governments and that requires looking back in the past. 
and not, it takes courage to go back and look at what's the real story of how we got to where we are. So my son Raleigh is uh, almost 12 and my daughter Zora is seven. So they just got school assignments at the same time. My son's school had this crazy thing called Ethnic Day. I'm not going to get Already. into that. Nope. Already. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Ethnic Day. God, I'm going to be living this down for uh, you know, for years and the therapy. So he, he had to do a project where he had to talk about what country is your family from. You have to talk about their economy. You have to talk to show the flag. You have to talk about how did they get here? What was the kind of immigration route? And then always that great last question, bring in a dish it's like, and do a jig from where your family's from. And a smile, too. And I was telling my, my kids, I was like, I don't know where we're from. Daddy was born in Chester County Hospital in Westchester. And, you know, I know our family came up from North Carolina. You know, we were, we were brought over as slaves. I don't know how we got our name. I don't know what country we're from. I don't know the traditions of that country. It was probably West Africa. So my cousin sent us some background information that she had done, and it basically showed the slave roles of a person in, I think it might have been Asheville, North Carolina. There was a slave owner, and his slaves were the Bowers. So that's where we got our last name, Bowers. Mm -hmm. And it listed, it was about 20 people, and there was a 12-year-old boy who was listed on this list of, sorry. Take your time. He was, a, he was inventory for a slave owner. So it's kind of wild to think about our people. You know, Napoleon talked about land. He talked about labor and he talked about equipment. And we were labor, but we were, you know, we were also equipment. Mm -hmm. and, our, and our land was taken. And so thinking about this from just from an accounting standpoint, when you're talking about equity and justice and this restorative stuff, you can't start from today. You can't start from a, a point in time and saying, Durham is where it is. And going forward, we want to have a just great, exciting place for and attract some great talent. If you go backwards, how did we get to where we are? What were the assets that we used? What are the assets that we combined to get to where we are? It was people. Right. It was people that were bought and sold. Sometimes the government accounting board, they'll come out with some new guidelines and they'll ask local governments to restate their financial statement. You have to like recreate them saying, you can't count this as an asset, so you have to go back and redo your financial statements to really reflect this true accounting. And I think about if we redid our financial statements as local governments and as a community to show the real liabilities, liabilities that we stole and we never paid back from our people that were actually people. We had people on our balance sheets. You know, we had businesses that were just stolen and taken. What would it look like? What would the financial statements of our communities look like? How much do we owe of little lives and blood that we've taken away from people? And even the stories, that history that is stolen away, what's the impact of that? Been sitting with it and it's, it's heavy, it's true, and my kids are biracial. So you know, my wife's white, kids are half white, this is our shared journey. It's our shared story. And we got to figure out what does this mean moving forward? But it first starts with being honest and saying, this is what really happened, y'all. This is how we got to where we are. You know, thank God, mommy, daddy, we have, we're allowed to be married now. What hasn't happened is we haven't done our kind of financial reckoning. We haven't done, we haven't restated these financial statements to really show why does it smell crazy when you go to grandma's house? Right. Well, because of what happened. Going to grandma's house your family, both of those are intertwined in this issue of, of 
people not having the economic or political power to defend themselves against encroaching interests. That's a lot of what we're trying to do with activists. There aren't great levers to stop the encroaching interests of a municipal entity Mm -hmm. on a people. There are places where there are interests where the thing that's being heard is not the voice of the community, but instead the demands of an investor. Mm-hmm. What you have to pay as a community, what you owe to whoever the original investor was, that bondholder or otherwise. How do you create tools so that communities, when you have the encroaching interest of a pig farm, or you have the encroaching interest mm-hmm. of an incinerator. An incinerator, yes. Yeah. When you have that, how do you say no? And it isn't just us saying no, like as a community, it's the investors saying no, because it's not in their interest either, and they recognize that. And you can't pull this again. Well, what do you want to leave folks with? I remember one thing that I did when I was a banker no money, no mission was the ethos. Mm-hmm. And for the folks that we were working with, they were nonprofits, whether they be religious institutions, universities, small businesses. Even though you might not want to really try to wrap your head around this economic piece, you have to. To not do that, you're doing it at your own peril. Now, you can have allies that are working alongside you, but I would say that from any issue advocate out there that's advocating on behalf of people of color, or if you are a local organizer or a leader in your community and you feel like there's this weight or pressure that you're always pushing against, in most cases, it's an economic interest that you might not be able to see. Mm-hmm. And find an ally, find us, pick up the phone call, whatever, right? <laughs> but like unpacking that and ensuring that the folks that are in the fight for racial justice and racial equity are at least aware of what those impediments are, what they look like, and how to overcome them, that is going to be key to our liberation. We want to be supportive of anybody working on that work and anybody that wants to tell us things that we should be focused on because they're feeling that same pressure impediment. We love to know about it. So for future listeners, it's December 2018, and in this year, it is cool to be talking about racial justice and racial equity. There's a currency in it. My colleague, uh, Marcus Littles, talks about people don't want to show up on the wrong side of history for whatever their motivation is. So they're trying to get right or at least look right. So there's a lot of folks, a lot of people wear Tom's shoes. I think Tom donates a pair of shoes. They make people look good and feel good. And people are talking about racial equity right now to look good, feel good, and even to make money off of it. Mm-hmm. There's a surprising a lot of white folks who are making money talking about racial equity, being in proximity to black and brown folks and sustaining and thriving off of that. The point that Napoleon made about understanding the kind of financial interest is important because this trend will, this too will pass. I don't know if it's a year. I don't know if it's two years. I don't know if it's just, it'll take the next recession, but folks who are allies now may not be allies when the the rains come and we'll see who's stuck around. So I think what that means is really sussing out what are the true financial forces and how can we mobilize power and how can we have analysis of local finance, 
who are really allies and who aren't because there's a number of cities that are claiming to be about that life. The mask is going to be taken off some. A lot of initiatives to support black and brown folks that might be new and exciting. We'll see those go away. This important work of starting to organize and plan now, we're gonna again need to do this ourselves. I wanna leave folks with what are ways you are investing in like those that you care about that might not necessarily be fiscally your community and building community and also what does that community look like is everybody there are differently able people there are queer people there mm-hmm. are formerly incarcerated people there like is everybody accounted for in your community and they're taken care of and then if they're not what can you do or do you know people that can do to make sure we all taken care of. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. Again, I don't think cops keep us safe. So it gotta be us. We're all we got. We are We're all we got. got. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Black Future Manifesto and what an episode it was. Thank you to both Ryan Bowers and Napoleon Wallace of Activist for joining us on this go around. We tackled a lot on this episode and still barely scratched the surface. Let us know your own thoughts on this and any of our previous episodes. You can tag us on social media at our handle at Black Future Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and tell us what's good. Again, that is B-L-A-C-K-F-U-T-U-R-E-P-O-D. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, follow us. A few more shout outs and thanks to give before I bounce. This episode was made possible by the support of Frontline Solutions, a Black-owned consulting firm that helps organizations working on the front lines of change, see what they did there, to define their goals, execute plans, and evaluate its impact. Thank y'all for the support of this podcast and for cutting that check for me. Thank you to Black Space Durham for giving us a space to record. Black Space is a digital makerspace based out of Durham and Chapel Hill, North Carolina that aims to provide black and brown youth with a breathing space needed to manifest their dreams by any medium necessary. You can find them at theblackspace.org and on social media at The Space Black. Thank you to Mr. Grooveology, producer of this soundtrack you hear behind the sound of my voice. For a deeper delve into the people, politics, topics, and organizations mentioned in this episode, head to our website, blackfuturepod.com, and click on our footnotes page. If you know of any people that we should feature on the show, hit us up, let us know, DM us on Instagram, or email us at info at blackfuturepod.com. You can tag us on social media using HeyBFM, that is H-E-Y-B-F-M, hashtag in front of it. You can show your support for us by hitting that subscribe button, sharing this podcast, letting your peoples know about us, and leaving a comment on our SoundCloud page or on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate you and hope you tune in next time. And until then, I am your host, Mariah M, signing off. Mm-hmm.